Good to be with all of you. My name is Gary Irby, and uh, my role, I, uh, I lead a ministry called Seattle Church Planning, one called Northwest Church Planning. And some of you are like, so what in the world is that? It does not mean I do landscaping for churches or anything like that. It means that I help start new churches, including this one. So it was my role to help Andrew and Kim move out here many years ago. If you ever are kind enough to have me back, maybe I'll tell you some of the stories of that. There's some fun stuff along with it. But obviously, we got that one right, right? So uh, we're so grateful that Hallows is here. I'm actually a part of Hallows. Um, I attend, loosely using that term, the Edmonds campus. What that means is I get the Edmonds expression, I get to be there about three times a year and uh, because I'm in different churches every year. And so um, why that's important this morning is you're a part of that. You're a part of the work that I do. As you give to this church, you support this church, you pray for other church planners, you guys have apprenticed other church planners and sent them out. It's all related to that. And so we've seen our number of churches grow. We're a part of a network of over 500 churches in the Northwest right now. At any point in time, um, probably 80 to 100 of those are five years old or less. And that's because of churches like yours taking part, helping with that. We're a very diverse group. We're probably in more than two dozen languages, 50 nationalities. About half the churches we start aren't in English. I don't speak those languages. I just eat whatever they put in front of me and it works out great. So thank you for your support of that work. Uh, I don't get to tell you enough, so I just want to take a minute and tell you that. Um, today, we are going to be in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're going to read the first eight verses, and I'm going to read that and we're going to dive into that together, okay? So in Acts 8, 1, it says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. Now, let me talk and stop for a minute and tell you who we're talking about. We're talking about Stephen. So let me give you the backstory, and then we'll go into the rest of it. Through Acts 6 and Acts 7, what was happening was the church was growing so much that uh, the Hellenistic Jews or Hellenistic believers were complaining that their widows and orphans were being neglected as they were taking care in the daily distribution of food. Hellenistic being those that are Greek, so those that came to faith that were Greek in background. And they said, hey, all these other widows and orphans are being taken care of, but the church is so exploding, the disciples can't keep up with everything, our people are being neglected. And so the disciples said, well, let's appoint deacons. Now the word deacon uh, comes from a word that literally means servant. So if you're a deacon in the church, you're a servant of God's church, okay? So it said, let us appoint seven of these deacons. The first one it mentions is a man named Stephen, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, did miraculous signs, was boldly preaching. And if you know the story of him in chapter 7, he basically goes through the history of Israel leading up to the time of Christ. And he shares about how all these things transpired to fulfill the prophecies of God and the plans of God. And yet then Jesus came and he, he says to them, you've rejected him. You turned on him. You're the reason he's gone, the reason he's been crucified. And, uh, and then as he at one point looked to heaven, he said, I see the heavens opening up and I see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And as he said that, they turned on him and took him out of the city and stoned him to death. So here's somebody who is so filled with the Holy Spirit that literally he is killed for his faith. And that's what it's talking about in this first part. Saul agreed with putting him, Stephen, to death. 
And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Now, just a reminder, if you don't recall, Saul is the one we later know as Paul after he came to faith and the one who wrote much of what we have in the New Testament. So Saul dragged them off and put them into prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip, who was another one of the seven deacons, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So there's a few things I want us to see from this passage today. It's, it starts off by saying on that day, and we talked about what that day was. It was a day of great persecution, a day of when the Jews were trying to snuff out this small, what they considered to be irreligious, uh, heretical sect of Christianity. They were trying to snuff that out. But in that day, things happen. Here's the first thing I want us to see is that the Holy Spirit ruled. The Holy Spirit ruled. This was a time uh, that many would say you know, definitely never before and likely never since the Holy Spirit had such free reign that he was pouring out miracles beyond what we see in many places. And so what happened in that day, Stephen was stoned to death, yet filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked to heaven and said, don't hold this against them. He was so filled with the Spirit that as he was being killed, he asked that the crime not be held against these people. He was stoned for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit compelled him to do so. He couldn't help but doing it. The Holy Spirit was so free in the church as we go on in the book of Acts. Acts, by the way, I, I love the book of Acts. It's the original church planting manual. Uh, as the church was spreading through the book of Acts, really what they were doing, they were sowing the seeds of the gospel and the church was spreading. The kingdom of God was expanding, which was what Jesus' great passion was, was the kingdom of God. So as this happened, things were, people were so in tune to the Holy Spirit that if, if you went against the Holy Spirit, you could drop dead. You know, we know, we know this story in Acts chapter 5 when, when a, a couple sold property. Many people were selling what they have, giving it to the church. They were sharing all things in common. That's why there was a daily distribution of food is they just collected what they had, put it together, and were serving as the church. And one couple sold theirs, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold their property. And one, first the man and then the woman came in and they gave the money to the church and they said they gave everything they got from it from the church. They basically lied to the church. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit was so powerful at this time, they dropped dead, first him and then later her. They just dropped dead on the site and were taken out and buried. Can you imagine Hallows being so in tune that if you came to church and you were dishonest with the church, you were to drop dead. Now you're thinking, I don't know that I like the sound of that. But the positive side of that was the church was so in tune with the Holy Spirit that God was able to use them in amazing, amazing ways. God freely used his 
spirit to expand the church. When you have the day of Pentecost, Pentecost meaning 50 days after the Passover, uh, Jesus was on earth after he died for 40 days. So like a, a week, week and a half later after passing, the, the church is gathered together. It says 120 of the disciples were in an upper room and the Holy Spirit descended on them like flames coming on them. And as they did, they, they were so moved by the Holy Spirit that they went out and preached. They went out and shared the good news of Jesus Christ in such a way that people from all over the world were hearing it in their own tongues. Imagine that. Imagine this group, the Holy Spirit falling on in such a way that we go out and the very diverse population of Seattle, they're all hearing it in their own tongues. That's what was happening in the church because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, it talks about how the church grew by 3,000, how it grew to be such a, so much a greater uh, church congregation than it had been before. So why, what do we see after that? We see that at, throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit continued to rule, continued to reign, continued to make impact in such a way that the church grew and grew and grew. And it's in this kind of setting that, that we see our passage today where the Holy Spirit is reigning, where Philip is being used in such an amazing way that miracles are happening and people are coming to faith in Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of my background. My, I'm going to tell you my whole resume. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you, when I was in college, I actually, my undergrad in college was, I was trained to be a secondary choral music teacher. I'm trained to be a high school choir teacher, okay? And I went to uh, Pacific Lutheran University down in Tacoma, at that time, uh, you may or may not know, Choir of the West, which was their top of like five choirs, was considered to be one of the best college choirs, classical choirs in the world. And it's not because people like me were in it. I mean, we were privileged to be in it, but it was because of the conductor. His man, this man was a man named Dr. Maurice Sconis. And Dr. Sconis was a literal music genius, had this ability. I could tell you these stories about rehearsals and just things that happen that you come out of in awe. And in one of these particular rehearsals, I remember going in and we had, uh, we had sometimes sectionals and then we come together for the full choir, the larger rehearsal. It was a double choir, 50 people, 25 in each choir. I won't go into all the breakdowns of all that, but it was just this amazing experience. Well, one particular day, they had us in a different place, not our normal music room, but what used to be um, the uh, old library. And it had these amazing acoustics. And we came in, as we often did, at 4 o'clock when we come in, he would just start conducting. We had several people in the choir with perfect pitch. One of them would hum. Uh, she later became the lead singer for the Chicago Opera, this soprano named Leanne. She was back behind me. She would hum a pitch. We'd all imagine our pitch, and we would start singing. We would hear if we were third or fifth or seventh or whatever, and you'd just start. There's nobody rolling a chord on the piano. You just knew that's how it worked. So this one particular day did it, and Dr. Sconis directed this one little phrase of music, not a complete sing, uh, sentence, rarely in English. So here's this one little phrase, and he conducted it, and he stopped us, and he did it again. And for two hours, without saying a word, he would tilt a hand, raise an eyebrow, do something with his mouth, his head, or whatever, and for two hours, play this choir like it was a Stradivarius. He got us to do amazing things on this same little phrase for two hours just by us being so in tune with what he wanted. 
I remember as we walked out of that, normally we'd walk out of that and we had 15 minutes before the cafeteria closed. So we were sprinting, we were loud, we were just, you know, busting across campus. This particular day, everybody walked slowly and quietly and reverently. And about halfway to the cafeteria, my roommate looked at me and goes, what in the world was that? I'm like, I have no idea, but it was amazing. And at that moment, it struck me, as amazing as he is and as amazing as that was, God made him. God made him. And it's stuck with me ever since that that's what the church could be if we were that in tune to the Father. If we allowed the Holy Spirit to direct us in such a way that he just went like this and we all went, we're here. And he went like that and we're here. That's what was going on in this time in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit was moving in incredible, incredible ways. How he used them was amazing. So we are in a time where we're seeing things like that. We are seeing things that are changing the world around us. We're in a time where there's up north, there's a, there's a cowboy church that has seen many churches started and hundreds of people come to faith in Christ. They baptized scores of people in just the last few months. There's a collegiate church that a, originally started as a campus ministry where the pastor was at a football game uh, before he became the pastor. He saw tens of thousands of people at this game, mostly students, cheering, cheering for their team and just going crazy. And he's like, why can't this be the church? Why can't we have that same thing with college students going crazy for God? And so he took his collegiate ministry and started a church. And out of that later started another and started another. And they started others. And right now there are probably 14 locations, something like that, have seen hundreds and hundreds of students mobilized as missionaries and hundreds and hundreds of students come to faith and be baptized as well as others in the community. There's a Hispanic pastor who grew up poor on a farm. He grew up uh, as the son from an illegitimate relationship with a foreigner who'd come to his country and gotten his, his teenage mom pregnant. He was raised by his grandmother. Uh, he later, because of an American missionary, came to faith in Christ. And through that, uh, was taken and starting at the age of 12, started planting churches. At the age of 12, later got his law degree, became an attorney, worked with the U.S. government, moved to Canada because of of cancer, and then out of that started planting churches. And one day, the churches that he had helped plant, on one day, they plant, they baptized 1,500 people. I'm not talking about stories that are somewhere around the world in a third world country. All these things have happened in Washington State in the last few years. We're living in a place of revival and awakening. And the question that I'm always asking myself, my concern is not whether or not it's going to happen. I have no doubt it's going to happen. Scripture tells us that the gospel is going to be preached. Scripture tells us it's going to expand. My concern is I don't want to be on the outside looking in. I want to be a part of this. I want to be used in such a way that as the Holy Spirit reigns, I have the opportunity to be used by God and be touched by God. And that's, that's what I want to see for Hallows as well. We want to see a place where the people are so in tune that the Holy Spirit can do amazing, amazing things and that the gospel expands. The gospel touches so many lives. 
So what do we see as this happens? And the next thing we see is that Christianity spread in the area. Christianity spread. I talked about that some before. It's, you know, we, we're in a time where there's such difficult things, where there's such oppression, there's such challenges. I'm telling you about the good things, but we're also in a time where if, and this is not theoretical, but it, we're in a time where if you said, I'm going to start a church in my house in this city, and the city finds out about it, they're going to shut you down. We know that because they told our planters that. This is, this is not Islamic or communist country. We're talking about here in Seattle. We're living in a time where if you stand for things that are biblical truths and biblical things, you're being told that you, you are hateful because you stand on the word of God. There are challenges that are there. There, I don't want to pretend that we're facing the kind of challenges they were in the times of Acts. We're not being dragged off to prison as Saul was doing. We're not being, we're not being killed for our faith as happened to Stephen. But don't kid yourself if you don't think things are likely to get worse, that you don't think we're going to be more oppressed for our faith. It's coming. Now, believe it or not, um, I'm an optimist. Uh, that may not sound like it, but I am. Because I, to me, I, I also look at it and I see what's happening. And I know that when the church in this world has expanded the, the greatest is when persecution has come. When persecution has been present. So the next thing we want to see is that uh, through this is that Christianity is being, uh, even in these dark times, is, is not being stopped by these things of the gospel. We know the second thing is that trials come. It says in verses 2 and 3, devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So let's recap. Stephen had been stoned. Others were being persecuted, largely by Saul, thrown in prison, and the rest of them, it says, except the original apostles, were fleeing Jerusalem. But it's through that that the church expanded. When we face trials, it is for a purpose. James 1 and 2 says, if you face various trials, it doesn't say that. It says when you face various trials. You know that God uses that to produce steadfastness. You know that you are going to be opposed. If you are not being opposed in what you're doing by Satan, who is real, if you're not being opposed by evil forces, then you're probably not doing much for the sake of the kingdom that needs to be opposed. We, if you are doing God's will, if you are living out God's will, you are going to face opposition. The idea of saying that, well, if you do God's will, you're in the safest place there is. That's not true. You're in the best place there is. You're in the place that brings the most joy. But just ask Stephen how safe it was. You are not in a place that is safe. You can face great temptations. You can face great trials. You can face great oppositions. I had the privilege uh, a few years back going with some other guys that do what I do from around the country. Um, and some, we were invited to go visit the underground church in Asia. And as we did, I got to tell you, it has to be the most humbling experience of my life. You see people who have little or nothing who go at great risk to gather together to worship God. 
you see, uh, we met a pastor that we picked up on a street corner. Like the streets are deserted in a town of millions of people. We picked up this pastor in our van. It, it felt like something out of a spy movie. We pull up, slide it open, he jumps in, and we keep, get going. And this guy, um, and I don't mean his offense, it's just the, the state of things we're in, uh, he would lo have looked poorly dressed and poorly kept for a homeless person in Seattle. He's just, he'd been through so much, he had so little. He'd been in prison, just gotten out after being in prison for six months for preaching the gospel. He was a pastor of three churches, three house churches that each had about 300 people in them that met one, you know, one of what we were in was probably half this room with 300 people in it. And I remember at one point we had the opportunity to go to a new church. And there they don't call them church. They talk about meetings, and they talk about dad, and they talk about, they, they talk about swimming parties. Well, swimming parties were baptisms. We were having a swimming party. They had to talk in code because they never knew who was listening. We were, we were told our rooms were bugged, don't have conversations, and those kinds of things. And as we went, we had a swimming party, and one of the guys with us, it was in his hotel bathtub, and uh, as they had this in that bathtub, they would bring them in one by one. And they wanted us to take part. We were there to observe. They were so, so thrilled we were there to be with them and encourage them. They wanted us to spend time. They wanted us to take part in it so they would translate. And we would hear them ask the person then translate to us, why, why are you doing this today? And they would speak of their faith in Jesus Christ. And they said, are you willing to give up everything for him, yes. Are you willing to lose your friends, yes. Are you willing to lose your family, yes. Are you willing to lose your job, yes. Are you willing to go to prison, prison? yes. Are you willing to die for him? And as they're asking these questions, we would all say yes, but we don't really face those things. They were literally saying, are you willing? Because these are very real possibilities. And the responses were so passionate and so strong, it was as if, they couldn't wait for him to finish asking because they wanted to follow Jesus in baptism. And the passion and the joy in a time of persecution where the church was exploding, this country on more than one occasion has tried to stamp out Christianity and every time they do, it explodes in growth. Right now, it's facing the greatest oppression of Christians and the church that it ever has. And we can be depressed or we can go, oh, God's gonna do something good. God's going to do something good. When great trials come, it's an opportunity for us to say, God is going to step up. We can watch what God is going to do in these great times of opposition. When you think about the world today, about the things that are happening, uh, it's just amazing how God is working in some dark places. Isaiah 5, 20 and 21 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. We are living in a time in America where if you stand for your faith, the world sees you, This the country often sees you as evil. You're the problem. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's the time we're living in. But the good news is it doesn't just stop with that. The next thing that we see in this passage 
is that Christianity spread. Christianity spread. Look at me with verse, at verses 4 through 7. It said, For those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to him. To them, The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. How did this happen? Go back to verse 1. It says, and the all except the apostles were scattered. Remember the oppression. Remember how this started, the persecution, the literal death-giving persecution, how it led to this story. How the things that man intended for evil, God used for good. We see that over and over. Romans 8, 28 and following says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, I think about, I have a friend who, who um, was on my staff a couple of times. And when the first time he was on my staff, he'd just come from a church where he'd been youth pastor. Now, this, this is going to date myself. This is back when the Soviet Union was strong. The Iron Curtain was there. The, the, the wall was there. Uh, when he, had, he took a youth group to a Baptist church in Russia to help them to, to fix their church building, to rebuild. And at one point, he and another leader from the, his youth group were taken in the pastor's office, and the pastor showed him these letters, which were in Russian. So my friend, whose name is he, he said, so what do they say? And he goes, they're death threats from the KGB. And he's going, they're death threats from the KGB, and I'm sitting in your office. Okay, what is this? And, and the guy laughed, and he goes, they're crazy. I have God on my side. And when Heath was telling me this story, I said, Heath, you realize what happened? He goes, what? By this time, the Iron Curtain had fallen. The walls were down. I said, he was right. He won. And Heath's response was, oh, <laughs> amazing. They're crazy. We have God on our side. We have seen opposition around the world in so many places. We have seen things where they've tried to stand up to what God was doing, and they couldn't. Some of the places where Christianity is growing the fastest today are in places of great opposition. Right now, Christianity is probably spreading at a faster percentage in Iran than anywhere in the world. Is that where you would think of as a Christian safe haven? It's not. You, you hear the stories about Asia. You hear the stories in Europe. Another one is in Cuba in the height of the time of Fidel Castro. He actually had a minister of religion. It was a lady. And her job basically was to keep a check on religious stuff in the country so it didn't become a problem. And so what was happening in Cuba, there was a great revival happening amongst Christians. Christianity was spreading like crazy. And they didn't have enough places to meet, so people were building duplexes. And they would live in half, and they would turn the other half into their church. And they were just cramming people in there. And Castro didn't like it. He said, that's too many people. If they get to 50 people, tell them they have to start another one. They can't, they can't keep putting them all in. Now, think about that for a minute, what just happened there. They get to this size. They have to start another church. This is Castro, the dictator. Well, then he's like, well, that's still too much. So if they get to 30, they have to start another church. The church exploded in growth across Cuba. 
I have Northwest, Fidel Castro was the church planning director of Cuba, even though that wasn't his, I mean, he was, he was trying to oppose God and the gospel was being spread like wildfire. You can't stop what God is doing. You just can't do it. He's God, you're not. You cannot stand in opposition to him and win. So what is the result of all this? What happened as a result of what was going on here? Look at, at verse 8. And it, here's it very simple. It just says this. So there was great joy in that city. There was great joy in that city. As opposition, as those tried to oppress, as people tried to stop what was going on in the church, it exploded into things that were transforming entire cities. When we talk to church planters about pastoring, we don't talk to them about just pastoring their church plant. We talk to them about pastoring their city. We talk to them about being a spiritual leader for their city. You are not just the church. Yes, I understand if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the literal church. Don't hear me say otherwise. I'm not talking about a universalist thing, but you are a church that is responsible for the city. You are to serve and love the city and transformation will happen. Years ago, I had the privilege of being one of the guest missionaries at a missions conference uh, on the coast in Florida. Everybody should have to suffer like that every now and then. So I went to this missions conference. It was a, a very large church. They brought in dozens of missionaries, and we all had different things we were doing, and just some incredible time of worship and speaking. And one of the guys they had was a pastor named uh, Dr. Paul Negrut. He was from Romania, and he shared his personal story of when he was in Romania. See, for years under communism in Romania, there was a man named Nicolae Ceausescu, and he was the, one of the most vicious dictators there were. He would kill his opposition or imprison them. He'd done incredible crimes against humanity. He persecuted the church regularly. And there, they, the churches had prayed and prayed and prayed that God would make it where they could freely worship, where they could freely proclaim the gospel. So starting in 1970 until 1989, Pastor Negrut's church every single day got together and prayed for their nation and prayed for the freedom of God's word to be shared. For, so for 19 years, they gathered. And one of the times when they were gathering, they heard that a neighboring pastor was about to be arrested. And so as their response, they didn't take up arms. They got their two churches together and they prayed. It was just a handful of people. And the next day they gathered and prayed again. And by the next day, there were 10,000 people that had come together to pray. And they said, we need, we need to go someplace where there's more room to pray. So they went to the nation's capital and gathered in the large square there to pray. Well, Ceausescu had heard about it. He felt like the, the U.S. government was stirring up some insurgents. And so to overcome this, what he did was he bust in all these people uh, to, to be there, to be a part of this. And, but before they got there, in one of these gatherings, what he did was he sent out the military to oppose them. He sent tanks and armed militia and gave orders, and they started firing into the crowd. And as that happened, the men who were at the front started ripping open their shirts as a target and saying, Jesus is alive, let us die. Jesus is alive, let us die. It so confused the military that they put down their arms 
and started chanting with them, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. So then Nikolai sent in his, his group to put, have this basically communist rally. And as this happened, uh, they had somebody in the crowd uh, try to stir it up against the Americans and stir it up against these Christians. But one lone voice started shouting, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. And before long, the entire crowd was doing it. And Nikolai realized he was in trouble. So he and his wife tried to flee the scene and went by helicopter to try to escape the mayhem. His own military ordered him, you need to land or we will shoot you down. He landed, he was captured, they had a quick trial, and he was executed. This was on Christmas Eve. The next day the headline read, the Antichrist is dead, Christ is alive. Through prayer, they turned a country. Later on, Dr. Negru, who by this time was a very public figure, right now he leads one of the largest, if not the largest, seminary in Europe. Uh, and he's, he's speaking all over the world. His church has grown to thousands. At that point, they were going to form a new government, and they wanted to elect a president. And the leaders of the country said, you need to run for president. If you run, you will win. There's, there will be no contest. You'll be our new president. And Nikolai declined. So they elected a new president. That new president came to, excuse me, to, to Paul, to Pastor Paul, came to, and Paul declined. That new pastor came to Paul and said, we need an ambassador to the United Nations. Will you be our ambassador? And again, Dr. Negri, Paul Negri declined. When he declined, he was asked why. He said, I'm already a preacher of the gospel of the most high God. Why would I take the demotion?" Do we look at God's word and our responsibility, no matter what your job is, as purveyors of the gospel, do we look at that with such seriousness, seriousness that we would not take a demotion to waste our time on doing things that pull us away from that? God can move in this city. I believe a great awakening is coming to America. I personally believe it is highly likely that it's coming from here. You know you live in one of only three cities where Christianity, the last time we studied it, was actually growing. Three cities in the United States. The other two are New York and San Francisco. Think about that for a minute. And I get asked this as I speak around the country, like why in the world New York, San Francisco, and Seattle? Well, my first response is we got nowhere to go but up. But the reality is here, we know we're the minority. Here, believers work together. Uh, I could tell you stories of coalitions and networks and denominations of how we're all true to who God made us to be, but we work together for the sake of the kingdom because we want to see awakening. That, now, do you want to see that? It's not a rhetoric. Do you want to see great awakening? Do you want to see revival? Do you want to see the Holy Spirit move in this area? Smile and nod or I'll keep going. Yes? You with me? All right. All right? Now ask yourself, do I really want to see that? Because it's going to get hard before it gets better. The great awakenings come most often out of great persecution and great challenge. But I firmly believe God can do it. I firmly believe God will do it. I just don't want to be on the sidelines. 
How about you?